Let me open us up in prayer as we get started. Father, we thank you so much for, uh, once again, the chance to come together and uh, be together with other men who love you and love your word. And Father, we pray that you would uh, take this time that we are uh, giving to you and that you would use it to glorify yourself and to change us. Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts. Uh, help us to take anything that we have in our minds that is uh, weighing us down, that is distracting us, that is uh, taking us away from here, that we would just give that to you, and for the next few minutes that we would just concentrate on you. And that, Father, you would speak to us, that we would hear, and that it would change us from the inside out. Lord, we, uh, again, give you this day. Thank you for the breakfast and for Mark getting up here so early to help prepare it. Uh, Father, just uh, strengthen us with it so that we can serve you more. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it's interesting you start talking about trials and it rains and some guys don't show up. I mean, what's up with that, you know? Get some real trials. Come on. Well, this morning we're going to talk about uh, the next step in this issue of trials. As you remember, we... uh, we said that the book of James is really a theology of suffering. Uh, from the beginning to the end, every chapter in it has to do with this issue of suffering. And, and a lot of times what we do with the book of James is what we do with the book of Proverbs. We try to treat it as if it is just a, a group of Proverbs that are disconnected, isolated thoughts. And we cherry pick and we pull out verses and we try to apply them to our lives. And the truth is that there is... Um, there is a theme that runs throughout, and it's this issue of trials. And this morning, we're going to be in uh, verses 9 through 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 1 of, of James. And as you're doing that, let me ask you a couple of questions. Has, has anyone, do you know of anyone that has more money than you do? It's probably sitting at the table next to you. Um, the truth is we all know somebody that's got more than we do in terms of money, things, stuff, cars, houses. Um, and have you ever been guilty of wanting to have what they have? Uh, wanting to be rich and famous, wanting to have a little bit more. Maybe your neighbor buys a new car, gets a new lawnmower, whatever it may be, whatever you're into. You get jealous and you'd love to have what he has. And that wanting can also turn into jealousy, envy, a little bit of greed. And have you ever thought, if I had a little bit more money, I'd really be happy? Have you ever thought that? Then you get it, and what happens? If I could just get a little bit more money, I'd really be happy. You know, this, this issue this morning is going to have to do with the, the topic of money and treasure. But it's going to be connected to this issue of trial. So let's look at verse 9. It says, But the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position... And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he's, he's been talking about trials, and all of a sudden he takes what seems to be this detour, and he starts talking about the brother of humble means, he talks about the rich man, then he, starts, he gets off in this little tangent of the sun rising, scorching wind, blah, 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 and then he comes back in verse 12 to, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So what's he talking about in these verses, and what does that have to do with me, and what in the world does it have to do with trials? 
Remember the context. He's writing to who? He's writing to Jewish Christians who are spread out all over the known world at that time. They're under persecution. Why? Because they're Jews and they're living in foreign countries. They're hated because they're Jews. But they also happen to be Christians. So they're Jewish Christians. So now they're not only hated because they're Jewish, but they're hated because they're Christians. They're hated by the Gentiles, but they're also hated by their own people. So these people are under tremendous uh, uh, persecution and that's who he's writing to and he's he's talking to a people who are predominantly poor these are not wealthy people now there are some uh, and and we're going to kind of dissect it this morning about who are the rich that he's talking about but for the most part he's talking to people who are living in poverty and that's why he starts off verse 9 says but the brother of humble circumstances see he's he's talked about godly wisdom that's what we looked at last week If any of you lacks what? Wisdom in the midst of trials. And when you're going through trials, one of the first things we start asking is questions. Why? How come? Why not them? Why me? And we're looking for answers. We're looking for wisdom. How do we handle this trial? How do we respond to this trial? So he's been talking about wisdom. He's also compared faith without doubt to double-mindedness and instability. He says, man, don't, don't be unstable. Don't be double-minded. Don't be wishy-washy in your faith. One, one day you believe, one day you don't believe. He says, believe, have faith. Don't be double-minded. Now, as I said, he changes gears on us. And this is one of those sections where we lift it out and we, we take it out of context and we try to teach lessons with this. And typically, we teach lessons about rich people because we don't necessarily think we're rich, and so we use these to slam somebody who is. Um, And typically, a brother in Christ who happens to be rich that we don't really want to tolerate because he has more than we have. And so we take a verse like this and say, well, you want to know what really happens to you? Yeah, read verse 11. You're going to wither. You're going to blow away. But that's not what this is talking about. So let's find out what he's really having to say to us. He's talking about poverty and wealth. The context is still trials. People going through trials. Remember the audience. Don't, don't forget that. Otherwise, the whole book of James loses its, its meaning and it loses its message. So it's the trial of treasures. James has a whole lot to say about this issue of, of treasure, about wealth, about poverty. If you look at James 2, 1 through 9... We're we're not going to look at it this morning. I'm just going to blow through this real quick, but we will get into these verses later on. He talks about the fact that God's choice of you had nothing to do with how much you have. It has nothing to do with personal favoritism. Okay, so he, he has a whole lot to say about this issue of wealth. So evidently, in the areas where these people were living, these people were struggling with not having, but being surrounded by people who had. And so they were always struggling with jealousy and they always struggled with and this was kind of the context of their day if you had especially for jews if you had a lot you had what god's blessing having much was a was in their mind a sign of god's blessing so now they become believers they're living in poverty and they're struggling with what's up with this why don't we have more maybe god doesn't love us maybe god doesn't think much of us and so james is going to hammer home God's choice of you had nothing to do with personal favoritism. It's not because one person has more, one person has less. 
And so he says in chapter 2, don't practice personal favoritism in your assembly. Don't give the best seat to the guy with the most money. Uh, Don't give parking spots to somebody who drives the nicest car and make everybody else park in the far parking lot. Um, Don't show personal favoritism. He goes on in chapter 2, and he says, help those who can't help themselves. Help the needy. Help those who are in need. Don't give words of encouragement when food and clothing is what is needed. In other words, guys, don't walk up to somebody who's in need and say, man, I, man I'll be praying for you. Let me, let me pray for you right now. But I'm not going to give you any money. I'm not going to give you any food. I'm not going to give you any clothing. But, boy, I'll pray for you. Put, put action to your words. So if you, if you have anybody in the church, and especially when you think about Christ Chapel, we have, for a, for a very wealthy church, we still have a lot of needy people. The, the widows have been talked about. We have widows in this church who are trying to raise kids on their own, and they have needs. And we cannot, and biblically cannot, look past these women and just say, well, be warm and be filled. Hope everything goes well. Hope that leaky faucet fixes itself. No, we have to step in. That's why we started Manpower Ministries. And, and we have 40-plus men serving in that ministry now, helping widows every single month. We need to put action with our words. Well, also in James chapter 4, he says, The love of pleasure is the source of all your quarrels and conflicts. He says, Why do you fight among you? Why do you have all this stuff going on? It's because you have a love of pleasure. And so you fight. You have and you, and you don't get it, so you fight. You envy. You're jealous. And they were asking God to meet their needs for selfish reasons. You ever done that? You ever ask God for something just because you want it? Not because you really need it. James has a whole lot to say about having and not having, about poverty and about wealth. Again, in chapter 4, he's going to talk about making plans without including God. How many times have I done that? Have you done that? I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to buy this business. I'm going to start this business. And we never ask God whether we should or we shouldn't. We're presumptuous. And we lack an attitude of total dependence on God. I don't need to ask God about that. This is just my thing. But then we'll ask him to bless it. And then we'll ask him to save it when it starts to go under. Now, we didn't ask him if we should start it, if we should do it, if we should buy it. But, man, when things go south, who's the first person we go to to ask him to save it? It's him. James says, don't do that. And then finally, in chapter 5, he talks about the unjust rich are going to get their reward. And it's not going to be what they expect. He says they've lived lives of luxury. They've had unrestrained pleasure, and they're going to get their reward. Now, that's more a message to the people he's writing to than to the rich. He's telling them, you know, don't worry about the rich. Don't worry about what they have and what you don't have. They're going to get their reward. God's going God's to even everything out in the end. You worry about you. You take care of your issues. If I gave everybody an opportunity, uh, you could share uh, a trial you had this last week. You know, because we're talking about trials, and, and my wife and I had a conversation about this, and she said, do you think it's because you're teaching on trials that more trials are coming? Or are trials happening all the time and we just don't recognize it? And I, I don't have a clue. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's like the chicken and the egg. I'm not real sure. But I did have an interesting trial this, this last week. Um, last... Wednesday, I believe it was, I, I got to go to a recital. Now, that's not the trial. Um, 
in a, in a way it is, but it's not the trial. But it was a trial. It was in the sense that it was late. Um, uh, I'd been getting up every morning early to do the f- ten days of prayer, and um, at least one of you joined me. Um, and so I was tired, and my wife says, "Hey, we're going to this recital." It was not only a recital; it was piano playing, it was singing, it was kids giving very long speeches. Uh, memorized speeches of great orations of the past, which they gave with very little enthusiasm. Um, And this thing went on and on and on. It's over in White Settlement somewhere. And so sat through that thing, and I was just wanting to go home so bad. And so when it was over, we were in two separate cars, and I said, Julie, i got to go home. I'm I'm, out of here because i got to get up early. So she goes, fine. So I drive home, and I get home and uh, getting ready to go to bed, and my Wife drives up in the car, and kids come running in and say, Dad, 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 there's a cat in the garage. And I'm like, who cares? Um, they said, no, no, we think it's in the car. I said, what do you mean it's in the car? I said, What's in, we think it's in the engine. I thought, okay, and so I go out there, and I'm in the garage, and I'm walking around my wife's van, and I, I sure enough hear this, meow, 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 this cat sound. So I'm looking around the car, I open up the hood, and I've got a flashlight, and I'm looking down there, and I can't see this thing, but I can hear it. There's a kitten somewhere in her car. And I'm just, you know, I'm shaking the car, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to get this stupid cat out of the car. And, I'm, and the whole time I'm thinking, I just want to go to bed. I, I just, but I know they've got to use the car the next day, and my kids would be upset if they had to drive with a cat in the car. And so <laughs> I finally, about 10 o'clock, I gave up, and I just said, I left the hood open, opened up the garage slightly, put a can of tuna under the car, and thought, It'll get out. So the next morning I get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock, I go out to my garage, back my car out, forgot something, go back in the house, get what I needed, go out to my car, and as I'm getting in my car, I hear this, meow, 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 meow. It's in my car. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, come on, Lord, I've got to get up to the church, it's early, I've got to go pray. And... Uh, Sure enough, this cat's in my car. I open up the hood, and I get a flashlight, and it's way down in the engine compartment. And I can't reach it. I can't get under my car to reach it. I can't reach it through the top. So I'm sitting there. I'm trying to think what to do, and I've got a stick, and I'm trying to hit it with a stick. I'm doing anything. I, the only thing I, I should have done was get the hose out. That would have been great. But this cat will not get out. So I do what any man would do. I close the hood. I get in the car. I start it, and I drive. And I drove from southwest Arlington to the church. And I can hear the cat the whole way going, meow, 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 meow. So I turned the radio on. (laughs) I just drowned that thing out. (laughs) And I hit every bump I could hit. I swerved. I did anything. And I kept waiting to see a little fur ball come flying out the back of the car. I get to the church. I get out. It's by now 6 o'clock. And it's still going. It's so I run in, have prayer time. I have to go meet a guy in this room for breakfast. I go out to my car. It's still in my car. And I'm getting fuming at this point. I'm, I'm so mad at that cat. I want him out of my car because all I can think is it's going to die in there. And then it's going to really smell great. So I drive to breakfast, have breakfast. I even call my mechanic and I said, can I bring the car by, put it up in the lift so we can get this cat out, which he thought was real funny. Um, I drive back from breakfast to the church. It's still in my car, and I'm really getting hot about this time because i got so many places i got to be. I'm tired. I'm sick of hearing the cat. 
So I finally, I pull it up on a curb so I could get it high enough, and then I run into the church and I get one of our uh, Life Stage pastors who happens to be thinner than me, and uh, I get Mark Seekins. And I said, Mark, come on, I need your help. And he goes, what? And I said, just come out. So we go out in the, go out in the parking lot, and I said, get under my car. And he goes, what? I said, I need you to get under the car. And he goes, why am I getting under your car? And I said, there's a cat in my car. And he goes, there's what? And I said, there's a cat in my car. So sure enough, he gets under there. He finds the cat. We get the cat out. He's trying to hand it to me from underneath the car. It scratches him. He lets go before I can grab it. It runs to the back of my car and jumps up in the back of my car. (laughs) So I'm in the back trying to get it out from inside the bumper. And by the time we get it out, I'm I'm ready to just kill it anyway. Um, But it it, it ruined my day. And I've, I've looked back at that and I thought how angry I got about this stupid cat. But see, trials are going to come, guys. Uh, I get the weird ones. I get, I get strange ones like that. You know, cats in my car, but they're going to come. How are we going to respond to them? Well, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning except trials, but I, I just had to tell it because if God's going to give me that trial, I'm going to share it with somebody else. Um, but this morning we're talking about this issue of the lowly and the rich, the humble and the not-so-humble. So we, we looked at these verses 9 through 12. What in the world is he talking about? He says, but the brother of humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. How are we supposed to do that? What does that mean? How are these people who have nothing supposed to glory in their high position? Well, that word glory means to boast on account of a thing. In other words, you're, you're to boast in your high position. And I'm sure the people who got this letter and were reading it were going, you know, what does this guy know? What what does James know about our position? How am I supposed to glory on account of my high position? I'm in poverty. Uh, I'm ridiculed. I'm persecuted. It means to rejoice because of something. Their trial happens to be the fact that they don't have much. But it's it's exactly like what started out in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. He says, rejoice, glory in your high position. Basically, he's telling them, Earthly poverty does not change your heavenly position. It doesn't matter how much you have or don't have. He's saying, guys, don't let what you have or don't have determine what you think your status is in the kingdom. It has nothing to do with that. It doesn't determine your position. And and a sign of trust in God, guys, for them as it is for us, is the ability to see beyond present circumstances. This is, I think, the hardest thing for you and I to do is to look beyond the immediate circumstance, uh, to look beyond whatever it is we're going through, whether it's a, a health trial, financial trial. We get so myopic. We, we just gaze at the problem, and we can't look beyond it. And, and one of the things that, that I'm a firm believer in is when you're going through a difficulty whether it's a divorce, whether it's a financial situation, a health situation, if you can get outside of yourself and if you can look at somebody else and if you can find a ministry to someone else, it will change your circumstance. Will it heal you physically? No. Will it heal your marriage? Probably not. But it will definitely heal your soul because when we start looking at our problem and that's all we focus on, We get nothing out of that. But if we can look beyond the circumstance and look at God around us, look at other needs around us, begin to minister to other people. But see, what we want to do is we want everybody to minister to us. What are you going to do for me? 
Why didn't anybody call me? Why didn't anybody help me? Well, who are you helping? Who are you calling? Who are you encouraging? So he's, he's saying, if you really trust God, you'll look beyond your present circumstance. Look beyond the cat in the engine compartment. You know, look beyond whatever your problem happens to be. So, so what's this heavenly or high position I'm supposed to glorify and rejoice in? What does that look like? Number one, you and I are children of God. That's exactly what these people were. Their high position is their standing in Christ. It has nothing to do with their poverty. Remember, Jesus came, and who did he mainly minister to? The poor, the downtrodden, the rejected, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, those who were shunned by society. Who did the message come to about the arrival of the Messiah? Shepherds, the lowliest of the low, looked down on in their society. But they're children of God. So he says, rejoice in the fact that you're a child of God, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, whether you have nothing, whether you have a lot, you're a child of God. Over in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. It tells us inside that we are God's children. The Spirit reminds us constantly, you're, you're my child. And it has nothing to do with your status on this earth, how much you have or don't have. So we are children of God. We're also heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're his heirs. And when you're going through a difficulty, especially a financial difficulty, if, you're, if you don't have much, to remember that, you know what, I'm an heir of God. I'm a co-heir of Jesus Christ. That's why in, in countries where there is poverty, and uh, the end of June, uh, Bill Egner and I are going to be going to Ethiopia to, to do a, a Bible training for about 50 national pastors, many of which don't have Bibles. They have no theological education, but they're pastors. And we're going to teach Bible to them. But one of the things about a country like that is there's a tremendous amount of poverty. They don't have much. But my guess is if they're like people in the Ukraine, people in China, people in other countries who don't have much, who are believers, if you ask them, do you have much? They'll say, yes, I have everything I need. I have salvation. I have my faith in Christ. I don't need anything else. I remember when I went to the Ukraine and we, we taught pastors there, we, we had a little uh, kind of a roundtable discussion with these young pastors and, and elders in, in churches there in the Ukraine. And it's, it's a highly impoverished country. Very few of them have cars. I remember we toured a building they were building. And, you know, compared to what we have, it, it was nothing. It was a ramshackle cinder block building that they were so proud of. And it was taking, it's taking them years to build this thing because they have so little money. Well, we're walking around and we're touring the facility. What's the greatest problem we have here in our facility? Parking. So I'm walking around. I don't see any parking. And I said, hey, guys, wh- where's your parking? And they, they, they looked at me and said, parking? We don't have cars. And I, it didn't even dawn on me that, that none of them own cars. They have one car in their entire church. They walk everywhere or they ride public transportation. But I remember asking them, I said, do you guys, you know, we, they wanted to know about our church. And we were almost embarrassed to tell them about our church, how big our church was, how much money we have, what's your annual budget. And I didn't even want the words to come out of my mouth because I looked around at what they had. And when we finished, I said, Are, do you guys get jealous 
of us. And they all looked at me like deer in the headlights or like I was an idiot. And they said, well, why would we be jealous of you? I said, well, because we, you've heard about our budget and you know how big our church is. And they said, well, we have everything we need. What do you have that we would need? We have Christ. And you know what? It wasn't just blowing smoke. They really meant that and believed it because they believed they're heirs and co-heirs of Jesus Christ. They believed that. And so not having much money doesn't bother them. Not having cars doesn't bother them. Not having parking lots doesn't bother them because they know who they are in Christ. Romans 8, 17 says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs. So what are they to rejoice in? Rejoice in your circumstance, your high circumstance, your high position. We are inheritors of God's riches. Do you believe that? 1 Peter 1, 4, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. See, we already have it. It's in heaven, but you know what? It's being kept for us. It's, it's out there for us. It's our inheritance, and someday we will get it in, in its fullness. I was thinking this morning uh, about the old uh, hymn, This World is Not My Home. It says, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My pleasure and my hopes are placed beyond the blue. My friends and kindred have gone on before, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, oh, Lord, what will I do? Angels beckon me to heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's the way we're supposed to feel. Our inheritance is not here. It's not the stuff here. It's somewhere else. It's in heaven. And we are inheritors of God's riches. So are they. We also see that we are a chosen race. These people were chosen of God, just like you and I are chosen of God. We're a royal priesthood. We have a position. We're a holy nation, as they were. And we're a people belonging to God. We're a people belonging to God. We don't belong here. We have a different calling. We have a different perspective. And that's why he could tell these people, rejoice in your high position, even though you're poor. Rejoice in it because you know what? It's not all about the stuff here. But, but the, the temptation in this earth is to get hung up on what I have or don't have. What somebody else have, has that I don't have. And he's going to talk about that. He's going to go right into this issue of temptations and how they relate to trials. Because what happens is when you're in a trial, that's when temptations hit. The temptation to get jealous, the temptation to get angry, the temptation to take matters into your own hand, the temptation to lust, to greed, to all kinds of things. Trials can lead to temptations. But we need to remember that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called by God. We see that in 1 Peter 2, 9. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have to constantly remember who we are, what our position is, so that no matter what we're going through, whatever the trial may be, we can declare the praises of him because he called me out of darkness into light and I have an inheritance waiting for me. See, it's all perspective. It's all the way you look at the trial you're going through. You know, he talks about your humble circumstance. He says, the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position. 
that is from a human perspective, guys. It's humble only when it relates to people on this earth. See, when God looks down and he sees somebody who has nothing and somebody who has a lot, he doesn't see them any differently, one from the other. See, we do. When we see somebody who's got really nice clothes on and driving a really nice car, we make some really bad assumptions. That person must really have their act together. They may be the biggest sleazeball that ever walked the planet. We'd invite them into our home. We'd leave our kids with them probably. Because, well, look at them. They're successful. If we meet somebody who is poor, somebody who doesn't have very nice clothes on, somebody who doesn't dress like we do, we make some really bad assumptions. These people are screw-ups. These people aren't very bright. These people don't have anything going. These people have made a lot of mistakes in their lives. I would never leave my kids with them. But they may be the most loving, godly people that ever walked the planet. See, God looks down and he sees what? He sees the heart. And he, he looks beyond the surface. He doesn't get hung up on that. So this humble circumstance is strictly human. It's how we look at things. It's somebody lacking in material goods. And he's going to talk about this. He's going to talk about later on, as we said, the guy who walks into your fellowship, he's really rich and got the nice clothes, and you say, hey, man, sit right up here. Let me introduce you to our pastor. And the person walks in, the the shovel clothes, and they don't look real good, and we say, well, let me introduce you to the back door. Let me alert the care team so we can keep an eye on you because you're probably here to steal something. That's the way we think. I'll never forget one time we... uh, you know, we have to worry about people who come in. And, you know, this this building is an attraction to a lot of different people for wrong reasons. And we had had somebody uh, come into church one time and they had snuck into the back, stole some very expensive microphones. And so we were on high alert. We were just constantly looking for people. Now, we tend to look for a certain kind of person. And they happen to be somebody who doesn't dress too nice, somebody who doesn't look like us. And I'll never forget there was a concert up here one night. And I was out in that main area, the grand room, great room, whatever it's called. And I see these four or five young kids come in with kind of long hair, weren't dressed real nice. One's in a wheelchair. And, and they, they come in, and I'm just I'm watching them. I just know these kids are up to no good. Because this was some, it was like a jazz concert. I'm thinking, you don't, what are you doing at a jazz concert? They're not here to hear the jazz concert. They're scoping out the building. And they're walking around, they're all together, and they're talking, and I'm, I got my eye on them. I'm going to watch these kids, and I'm following them around the building. And I mean, I had these kids so pegged that they were juvenile delinquents who were going to steal us blind. And so they were sitting over on this bench in the, the great room, and I walked over, and there was another gentleman there, and nicely dressed guy, young guy, probably, you know, 30-something, and I walked up to him, and I introduced myself, and it was kind of a ploy so I could get closer to the bad guys. You know, I'm watching the bad guys. So I'm introducing myself to this guy, and I said, hey, how you doing? First time to church? And he goes, yeah, I just came to hear the concert. And he goes, and I brought my kids with me. <laughs> and I turn around, and it's his kids. And I look at him, and I look at the kids, and they don't look anything alike in terms of the way they're dressed or anything. And I said, well, oh, well, could you introduce me? Well, then it's up. It's two of his sons and their buddies, and they're in a Christian band who plays jazz. And they were here because they wanted to hear the jazz music. I felt like an idiot. Here I was, I was profiling these kids. But see, that's what we do. We automatically make assumptions that somebody who has little, there's something, something wrong there. 
someone lacking material goods, someone who's socially despised, somebody who doesn't look quite right. Their lot in life has humbled them. They're feeling kind of low. They're feeling kind of down. And you know what? They're coming to our church. And when Jesus Christ sees them, when God the Father sees them, he sees them no differently than the person in the $1,000 suit driving the real expensive car. He sees them the same, and so should we. God's standard, Lehman Strauss says, does not go by one's place, face, or race in this life. See, God's standard is different. It doesn't go by their race, their face, or their place. And James is going to tell these people, you're guilty of doing that. But you know what? Even if you're humble, even if you're in a lowly place, you've got a high position. So what is their earthly position? Where are these people? Real quickly, they're poor in the things of this world. They don't have a whole lot. They're in poverty. Many of them are living in practical slavery. It's, it's not by coincidence that James opens his letter in verse 1. He says, James, a bondservant of God. That resonated with these people because many of them were bond slaves. They were so poor that they had to sell themselves into indentured slavery to just make ends meet. They were in debt up to their ears. They were living in abject poverty. So they knew what humble circumstances were all about. But he says, glory in your high position. They had lost their homes. They'd lost their families. Many of them lost their jobs. Why? Because they were believers. And they had very little to take pride in. You know, we have a lot, don't we? We have a lot of stuff we can take pride in. Our cars, our houses, our jobs, our families, this church. These people had very little. But he tells them, rejoice. Glory in your high position. J.H. Pickford says, we must be God's nothings if God is going to do something through us. Let us step down from the throne of self and he will exalt us in due time. See, this isn't just about physical poverty. It's about an attitude of poverty. It's an attitude of knowing who we are in Christ. That all of our stuff doesn't qualify us for anything in his eyes. Doesn't matter how rich you are. Doesn't matter how poor you are. God sees us all the same. Go. I'm stuck here. Look at this. He says, the wonderful thing about these early Christians, this is Ray Stedman, is that when they went through trials, they rejoiced. Isn't that amazing? When you go through trials, do you rejoice? I want to beat the tar out of the cat in my engine compartment. I want to get angry. I want to get mad. They counted themselves fortunate to be considered worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord. Do you do that? Do I do that? The writer of Hebrews says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I could not help but contrast that with us. We, all, we get all unhappy over finding crabgrass in the lawn, don't we? Or if we hear that our mother-in-law is coming for a visit. It makes us almost ready to commit suicide. We become disturbed over these little things. You know, this year I, I, I uh, took it upon myself to treat my lawn. And uh, I, I think I overtreated it because uh, all the weeds are flourishing and all my grass has died. And it's funny, this, this line here about finding crabgrass in the lawn, every time I drive up to my house, I get kind of angry because I hate the way my yard looks. I get kind of embarrassed because I look at my neighbor's yards and they look better than mine. And I think how stupid that is in the grand scheme of things. How, how little that trial is compared to what many are going through. 
We become disturbed over little things when the, the Hebrews were rejoicing that they lost their property. They got their property plundered. See, our perspective is all wrong. We need to change our perspective. So who was their example for rejoicing, for, for glorying in their high position? Well, it was Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. We've talked about this before, but if we, if we don't ever grasp the step down it was for Jesus Christ to leave glory and take on human flesh, we'll never understand the gift. We'll never appreciate the gift. It was not a promotion for him to become a man. It was a major demotion. He became poor. He gave up everything in order to take on human flesh. He's, he's their example. He's our example. Philippians tells us, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He took on not only human flesh, but he took on death on a cross willfully. He impoverished himself. He, he became poor so that I might become rich. He took on an attitude of poverty. He, he, it says in uh, Philippians that he, it wasn't a thing he would grasp. This position with God, was, he didn't hang on to it like a dog with a rag. He let go of it, willingly, willfully. Rich yet humble. It's, it goes on, it says, the rich man, verse 10, is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. The rich in James is almost always referred to as an unbeliever. This is not rich Christians. This is rich unbelievers. It's probably, in many cases, rich Jews because there were rich Jews who had made their way, gone into commerce, and they were taking advantage of their brothers and especially Christian Jews. So this is people outside the community of faith. They're unbelievers is who he's talking to. So we can't take these verses and throw them at the believer, the rich believer in the church that we have a problem with. That's not what this is talking about. He says, they are to glory in their humiliation. Literally, their low degree or estate, their lowliness. The rich are to glory in their lowliness. It's the idea of it's going to be caused to happen. Someone's going to cause them to be lowered. Do you know of anybody that willingly lowers themselves? It doesn't happen very often. And so what he's telling these people is, you will glory in his humil- your hu- humiliation. Really what he's saying is, right now you're glorying in all your wealth, but it's going to result in your humiliation. And that's what's described in verse 11. There's going to come a day when those people, those rich people in this letter, who are taking advantage of the poor Christians, they're going to get their just dues. And everything they're glorying in now is going to result in their humiliation. All their riches are going to get blown away. They're going to get scorched by the wind. They're going to wither. They're going to die. And the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. It will not last. So it's going to be caused to happen, this humiliation. Their current pride is going to result in their ultimate humiliation. And so... When we sit there and we look at all the people around us, people in the media, people who have all this money, people who are, you know, don't know Christ and they're living ungodly lives, but they have so much wealth and we get so jealous and so upset, you know what? Leave them in God's hands. God's going to take care of it. And as verse 11 says, 
the that rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Their rich rich wealth is not going to save them in the end. James 5, 1 through 6 says this. Listen, you rich people. This is his perspective to these very people at the end of the book. He says, listen, you who are rich. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Man, this is, this is real fun. You know, what's interesting is that he's writing to these people, so obviously they're attending the church. They're part of the fellowships that he's writing to, but not believers. He says, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned the murder and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. This is what's going on. And he's telling these people, you know what? You of low degree, hey, Rejoice in your position in Christ. You rich people, you got it coming. What can a rich believer learn from all of this? It sounds pretty negative. Everything he said is pretty negative in verse 11. But what can a rich believer learn? You can be rich yet poor. The rich man is to glory in the fact that he is nothing without God. All of us are nothing without God, no matter what we have. But if you're rich, don't get hung up in your wealth. And the truth is we are all wealthy. God does not take into account our wealth or our material standing when he looks at us. He looks past it. Now, he does hold us in greater accountability when we have more. Too much has been given, much will be required. Those of us who have been blessed financially, God does expect us to be good stewards of that wealth. But we are to have an attitude of poverty. Grace is the great leveler. God looks across the spectrum and he sees everybody and he sees them all the same. And he extends grace equally to all. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. His true value is not attached to his wealth. That, you know what, my wealth doesn't buy me anything in God's eyes. That wealth is temporal and we all need to remember that. It is fleeting. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, And it certainly is not anything we're going to take into heaven with us. A wealthy believer needs to know his true position in Christ, that I am an heir, that I am a co-heir of Jesus Christ, that I'm an inheritor, that I'm a, a priest in the kingdom of God, and I am no better than any other believer, no better than any other believer. I'm to glory in my humiliation because I am saved by faith, not based on my net worth. It's, you know, God doesn't look at me and go, oh, well, you've got a lot of money. I think I'll save you because then you can give. God doesn't need our money. Our worth has nothing to do with it. He doesn't value us any more the more we have. We've got to constantly remind ourselves of that. Because we can get puffed up in what we have, can't we? That I must be kind of special. Not in God's eyes. What we have means nothing to him. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die, Ecclesiastes tells us. You don't take it with you. You don't get to spend it over there. It all stays here. Hebrews 12:11 all discipline for the moment seems to be joyful not joyful but sorrowful yet to those who have not who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness guys we are going to be disciplined we're going to go through trials we don't particularly like it but it will be used of God to change us and we need to remember our status 
Well, there's three promises, and I'll close with these. Three promises. Blessedness or happiness. Because it tells us in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When we persevere, we will be blessed. We will be happy. Not because of the trial. Nobody likes the trial, but because of the eventual outcome. Because trials do serve a purpose for us as believers. And perseverance, as we looked at last week, is the experiential proof of faith. Do you really believe as you go through this trial, you will be blessed? And the happiness or the rejoicing, as verse 2 says, should come in this life, not over there. We can rejoice here and now. Secondly, we get God's approval. We will receive God's approval. I long for the day when I can stand before him. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. God's approval. What's the ultimate God's approval? Come on in. Welcome home. Sit down and eat dinner with me. You will be approved, accepted, pleased in his eyes. Well, thirdly, we get the crown of life. The crown of life, guys, is just a symbol for eternal life, and it awaits everyone in this room who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest promise of all. It's a picture of a laurel or a wreath that was given to the winner of a race in those day and ages, that when you cross the finish line as the winner, you are awarded your crown. That's what we're going to get when we cross into heaven. We will receive that crown. It's a promise of God. It's a guarantee of God. And it's something we can rejoice in. Well, guys, let me close this in prayer as we wrap up this morning. There's a, a quote from Thomas Manton, lived in the 17th century, says this, Blessed or happy are the people whose God is the Lord. That is, those who count enjoying God as their happiness. When they lose everything, they can still be happy because they have not lost God. Our afflictions reveal our state of mind. When we see outward crosses as the greatest evil, God is not our main happiness. There are great evils that are soon felt by an ungodly heart, yet the prophet, like all believers, says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. In the greatest lack of earthly things, there is happiness and comfort enough in God's covenant. Father, I pray this morning that you would help every one of us in this room to realize our position in you, that it doesn't matter how much we have or don't have. That, Father, we would rejoice in you, that we would remember that we are inheritors of a great kingdom, that we we are your heirs, we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ, that we are rich in so many things other than the wealth of this world. Help us not to get puffed up. Help us to get our eyes off the, the things of this world. If we have it, great but don't let us worship it. If we don't have it, don't let us pursue it with a vengeance and make it a God. Father, I pray that we could rejoice and be happy regardless of our circumstances. And as we walk out of the room today, Father, every one of us is going to encounter a trial of some kind. There are guys in this room who have lost much, who are going through financial difficulties. There are guys in this room who have lost their spouses. They've lost the love of their life. And they're going through difficult times. Father, come alongside every one of us and give us a godly perspective that regardless of our circumstance, we are your children. We are a royal priesthood, a people of your own choosing. We belong to you. And we can rejoice and glory in that because it is an extremely high position. We love you, Father. 
And I thank you for the men in this room, for their faithfulness and their desire to be men after your own heart. Bless them, grow them, and change them just as you do me. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, pick up a lesson and we'll see you next week.